Okay. We're live. We are live. Oh, look at that. Okay, uh, Shemek. Thorn. Grab. Hate. Protect. I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. I put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for their deceitfulness is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. Good stuff. That's it. Okay, here we are, February 9th. He almost didn't grow up. On February 9th, 1709, John Wesley, then known as Jackie, was just five years old as he lay in bed on the second floor of the rectory in Epworth, Lincolnshire, England. Waking up, Jackie was puzzled to find the room filled with light, but the curtains on the four-poster bed were closed. He poked his head out and saw streaks of fire on the ceiling. Then he realized that his two sisters who shared the bed were with him were gone. Then he looked over to the other bed where the nurse slept with his sister Patty and baby Charles, and that, too, was empty. Jackie jumped out of bed, ran to the open door, but found the floor in the hall on fire. He ran back into the room, climbed up on a chest of drawers, and opened the window latch so he could look out. Above him, the thatched roof of the rectory was ablaze, fanned by a strong northeast wind. Below, he could see a crowd of neighbors throwing buckets of water at the burning building with little effect. One of the men looked up and saw little Jackie edging his way out of the window along the windowsill and frantically called for someone to get a ladder. There will not be time, another man yelled. Then a tall, burly neighbor leaned against the side of the burning house, and all the other neighbors helped a lighter man climb onto his shoulders. As the heat from the fire began uh, behind Jackie grew intense, the man managed to stand upright, stretch out his arms, and pluck the little boy from the windowsill. Just then, the house's roof caved in. As the family was fleeing from the burning house, Mr. Wesley had realized that Jackie was missing. But when he tried to run back up the stairs to get him, the stairs were on fire and wouldn't support his weight. In agony, he had quickly knelt on the hallway and committed Jackie to God before fleeing with the rest of his family. <coughs> when the rescuers carried Jackie to the neighboring house where the family had taken refuge, his father cried out with joy. Come, neighbors, let us give thanks to God. He has given me all eight children. Let the house go. I am rich enough. The event left an indelible mark on John Wesley's life. He took it as evidence that God had some particular purpose in sparing him. Later in his life, as he led the Methodist revival in England, the incident became for him a picture of the world and his role in it. The burning house represented the perishing world. Each soul was symbolized by the perishing child who needed the, to be plucked from the fire. On February 9, 1750, 41 years after the fire, Wesley made this journal entry describing a watch night service in London's West Street Chapel. About 11 o'clock, it came to mind that this was the very day and hour on which I was taken out of the flames. I stopped and gave a short account of that wonderful providence. The voice of praise and thanksgiving went upon high, and great was our rejoicing before the Lord." Before he died, he wrote his own epitaph, which begins, he lieth, Here lieth 
the body of John Wesley, a brand plucked out of the burning. Can you relate to Wesley's analogy of a brand plucked out of the burning, representing souls being rescued out of a perishing world? How does your understanding of the world compare with Wesley's? Jude one twenty three says, rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. And what did he call himself? What? Brand plucked from the burning. It's a verse from Zechariah. Are you okay over there? Oh, yeah, I'm just... Okay. I've got somebody over here hiding under a blanket in the back of the church, and so I thought maybe there was something going on there. Okay, we got a couple of prayer requests. <clears throat> Jeff's mother has colon cancer and uh, many associated problems with it. Uh, Thursday morning, which is today, she started surgery. She should be done soon, if not already. Uh, flooded. She's been flooded with spike proteins also. His uh, father is 91 and really missing her as well. So um, his the father's poor eyesight doesn't help. He's kind of stuck at home without his wife. And so he's asking for prayers for the whole family. And uh, he also says there's another lady in the uh, hospital. I think her name was Hope that uh, they are pretty sure doesn't know Jesus and has the same colon cancer. So he's going to try to witness to her, and we'll pray for that. And then uh, Rob is unsaved. Jeff is asking for prayers for him. And then Sean is very depressed due to the severity and persistence of the depression. He's actually afraid that he's going to act on it, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, he's really struggling. So I've talked to him a little bit, and uh, we'll just pray for Sean. He's a great guy. He just struggles with, uh, the, you know, we all have our uh, things that bring us down, and he's got just a, uh, I think, a chemical imbalance or something that causes depression. It's not anything that's like, you know. Anyway, Elise uh, has kidney stone to be taken out tomorrow morning, and so uh, we want to keep her in prayer as well. So that's a couple of the prayer requests. Heavenly Father, uh, we, yes. Bridges. Oh, the bridges, that's right. Uh, Mabel and Bernard, I meant to say, I'm glad you mentioned that. And um, Burke. Burke just got out of surgery for uh, the cancer. They had to dig deeper to make sure they could get it off. Heavenly Father, we lift all of these people up to you, their situations, and you're fully aware of them. And you know uh, the, out, the end from the beginning and the outcome of these things. So. We leave them in your capable hands, but we certainly pray for them that you would be with the people, be with the doctors, be with the surgeons, be with those who are tending to these people, uh, those who are ready to witness to these people. Uh, Give them boldness in that. Give the doctors wisdom. Lord, just be with your people according to your uh, wisdom. And we uh, leave these things in your capable hands, knowing that they are exactly where they should be because of it. And we thank you. We praise you. We pray for this class. We pray that... uh, Things will be said that are proper and glorifying of you. And Lord, you're so good to us. We love you. We exalt you. Thank you for the beautiful weather we have outside today. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. A little praise here before you get started. Yes. You saw your note there? Yep. About Hunter? Oh, yeah. He rearranged his schedule this weekend so he can go again. Good. Good. Uh, All right. the projects. Good. That's Jim's grandson. It's going to the projects with us, which is very nice. Good to see him. It was good to see him. Yep. Last time I saw him, I mean, it was only a couple of years ago. He was about this tall, and now he's like three inches taller than me. So. He's taller than I am. Yeah, he's a big guy. Okay, we're in uh, Colossians 4, verse 11 today. Should I back it up? Wherever you want. Yeah, we could get done today. Um, well, I'll try. Oh, I 18, I don't know. We'll try. Right. I don't think My we can get seven verses. Our 
sends you his greeting, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. 11. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. There are the only... There are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have provided, have proved a comfort to me. Did I drop something? Where is that book I just read? Here? You're talking about the... Oh, did I put that there? You did. I can't Probably believe I did that. That doesn't belong there. I don't know why I did that. I'm you, like, you what, what happened? To... No, no, I don't need it, but I need it for next week, and it shouldn't be there. But anyway... Um, gee, lost all my train of thought. I thought I was hallucinating Read or it something. Again? Uh, yeah, please. Okay, here we go. 11. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Okay, uh, this is more literal here. And Jesus, who is called Justice. <clears throat> These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Almost the same, but he just changes Jews for circumcision, and they go in a little different order. <clears throat> the name Justice is found in Acts 1.23 and 18.7, but it is a surname, which is not necessarily speaking of the same person. The name Jesus is Jewish, meaning salvation. It could also be a form of Joshua, meaning the Lord is salvation. Jesus is uh, in the Greek New Testament, Isus, and Joshua in the Greek Old Testament and New Testament is Isus. They're spelled the same. And so it's hard to say, is it speaking of Yeshua, Jesus, or Yehoshua, um, Joshua? Anyway, one way or another, this Hebrew name was probably the name used among the Jews. Justice is Latin and means the just one it would have been the name used among the Gentiles. And this is not at all uncommon in the New Testament. He's not mentioned in the epistle to Philemon, even though all the other names here are. Paul, however, includes his greeting of the brethren here. Okay, so if you didn't get what I just said, uh, all these other people that he's mentioning are mentioned in Philemon, but justice is not mentioned there. But it's probable that they were written about this time, including, well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. We'll come into this. But um, <clears throat> let's see here. After this, he says something rather important, which is often overlooked, but which teaches us an essential point. He says, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. Why is this important? It is because he will continue with other names of people who greet the congregation at Colossae, including Jews, including Luke. This then signifies, without any doubt at all, that Luke was a Gentile. Gentile. Mm. Right. The reason why I take this so adamantly is because there are people that are just so arrogant. Mm. I'm talking about Jewish people that are believers or whatever, and they're... He can't be a Gentile. He has to be a Jew because he wrote scripture. He wrote uh, two books of the Bible. He is a Jew. And they go into these long, convoluted defenses of why Luke is a Jew, which it right there tells you he's not. And that's all we need. We don't need to go any further than that. He's writing everything from a Jewish perspective. All of Christian tradition, all of Christian history, the church fathers, everybody agreed that he was a Gentile. But today, people know better than the Bible itself. And so they come out with these defenses. 
And that all goes back to something said in the book of Romans, where it says the Jews are the stewards of the oracles of God, right? Okay, so they, well, hold on. They say that because they are the stewards of the oracles of God, he has to be a Jew. Now, what is the fallacy with that? The fallacy is, is, that, is that back then there was no Gospels. There were no Gospels. There was no New Testament. So the oracles were all the, the oracles of God were written by Paul speaking of Scripture, the Old Testament. The New Testament didn't exist. Paul is writing the New Testament while he's saying this. The Gospels are being written, and they're not yet considered canon when he said this. And so it, it, everything about that analysis, if you ever read one, is a fallacy. It is a fallacy of thinking, and it is also crazy. So what I want you to do, if you come to that type of a, a commentary, if somebody sends it to you, crumple it up and throw it away. If it comes in a book you have, take it and pull it out of the book and chuck it in the fire. If it's something on a website that you're reading or somebody sends you the link to, hit delete or X out of that page and don't go back because it's crazy, okay? This is all we need to know right here that Luke is a Gentile. I, 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 it's, it's maddening to me, and that's why you can see my voice is raising, is because people love to defend the indefensible. Anyway, and for reasons that are crazy. Anyway, um, uh, it's important. This signifies without any doubt at all that Luke was a Gentile. Thus, at least two books of the Bible, Luke and Acts, were in fact written by a Gentile. Okay, what's another book that could have been written by a Gentile? We're not certain, but it could have been. Begins with a J and ends with an James. O B. James. Job. Job. Job, right? We don't know who wrote it. It could be that Job wrote it, and if so, Job was a Gentile. You were very close though. You almost got it there, Sir Jail. So if Job was written by a Gentile, it still doesn't change Paul's writing in the book of Romans. It says they are the stewards of the oracles of God. It doesn't say they wrote the oracles of God. It says that they were the stewards. They were the maintainers of it. And so even then it doesn't change anything. So I am one of these people that wants to take the Bible and say, this is what it says, and therefore I'm going to stick with it instead of trying to say why the Bible is wrong. Okay, we'll go on. Despite this being as obvious as the nose on one's face, there are still people who will argue against this, demanding that Luke was a Jew. They base, oh, I've already said it, but I'll read it anyway. They base, base this on Romans 3, 2, where Paul notes that it is to the Jews that were committed the oracles of God. This is what is known as a category mistake. A category mistake is what? It's, I just said the word. It is begins with F and ends with fallacy. Yes, good. It's a fallacy. Luke and Acts were not yet a part of the canon of Scripture. Paul was speaking of the Old Testament, which pointed to Christ. It further means that they were entrusted with these oracles, not necessarily that all had been written by Jews. Oh, here it is. Job was a Gentile, and he may, and we do not know, he may have been the author of his book. Regardless of Job, the New Testament is not the old, and Paul's words do not apply to what is being referred to in Romans 3, 2. And yet, despite Paul's clear and obvious words here, people will still make up false analyses concerning Luke in order to justify their presuppositions. Everybody knows what a presupposition is. I believe in advance, and therefore I am going to make this fit what I believe. That's a presupposition. I believe in advance, okay? Uh, actually, the fitting part would be what's known as eisegesis. Presupposition, I believe this already. Nothing is going to change my mind, okay? Eisegesis means reading into the word, 
exegesis is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to draw out from the word. The difference is eis means into and ek means out. Okay, so you're supposed to draw out from the word what God is telling you. You don't take your thoughts and jam them into the Bible. Probably the most common error of any error outside of taking things out of context is eisegesis. People saying, I'm going to make that, and that's why we have all of these different views on theology that aren't based on scriptures, because somebody goes there with the presupposition, he says, I believe this. Now I'm going to make the Bible fit what I believe. And you see it all the time. Sermons are filled with it. Analyses are filled with it. Websites are filled with it. You cannot have that approach, okay? You need to make sure you say, I'm going to set everything aside that I think I believe when I do this analysis, and I'm going to let the analysis speak for itself. It's very, very, very hard to do. I'll admit that right now. It's a very hard thing to do, but that is what you must do. Monday sermon typing is one of the most difficult things for me because I already have things in my head that I believe based on cursory reading of scripture, based on what I've taught, based on what I've read. And so I need to say, I need to put all of that off to the side and I need to just sit and think about what the word says. And it's a hard thing to do. All right. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, his obvious words. Uh, we're here. People will still make up these false analyses. It's a very bad way of handling the Word of God. The people Paul has thus far mentioned are the only ones of the circumcision, or Jews, who were with him. He then says about them, they, meaning these people of the circumcision, have proved to be a comfort to me. The word comfort is parigoria. This is the only use of it in the Bible and it is used in a medical sense of quieting or soothing. It is where the English word paragogic comes from. Whatever affliction Paul was facing, be it medical or mental, they were there to take away the unnecessary pain and discomfort which he faced. They were as if a soothing balm to him. Okay, and so he's thanking them in his letter for that. He's letting people know that these people are a great soothing, healing comfort to him. Life application. If the Bible teaches that Luke was a Gentile, which it does, but you are stuck with the presupposition that he was a Jew or a proselyte to Judaism, get over it. Luke was a Gentile. Or 12. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of, G of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Huh, that's a long verse, and uh, it's a little different. I mean, it's the same thing, but it's just different words. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. What a great guy. Just the way he describes him there. I've got to read that again. Who was, I, you know, it's funny, you, you read things a million times, and then you stop and read it slowly, and you're listening while somebody else is reading. It means a lot. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, another compliment, greets you. So he's willing to acknowledge them, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. He's a prayer person, that you may stand perfect and complete. He even explains his prayers in all the will of God. Great verse. Uh, 4.12, Paul now reintroduces Epaphras, whom he calls one of you. He was a fellow of those at Colossae and obviously well known to them. He was an evangelist, having taught the word of the Lord to those at Colossae. 
This was seen in verse 1-7. He's also called a bondservant of Christ. It is a title which Paul uses of himself elsewhere, as both James and Jude do. One other person that Paul calls a bondservant is Timothy. Okay, It is true that all Christians are servants of the Lord, but this term is certainly being used in these five instances as a particular designation. What is possible is that the others, like Paul, would often refuse wages for the work they accomplished. This is speculation only, however, okay? He's, he's using it for a reason. We don't know what the reason is, but uh, he specifically calls himself a bondservant. James does. Uh, he calls Timothy that. He calls um, uh, uh, Epaphras here that. Okay, so these are people with that particular designation. A bondservant means a bonded servant, a servant that gets no pay. Doesn't necessarily mean a slave, but the word slave pretty well defines it, okay? So, he's saying that he is a bondservant, and he is a Gentile, okay? So, a bondservant can be a Jew, it can be a Gentile. It's a person that is serving the Lord as if he is a bonded servant. This Epaphras greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, Paul's words. The word fervently is agon izomai. It means to struggle, as a person would in an athletic competition, reaching for a prize with all their might. One can see a hint of the word, anybody? Agony, agony in it. Like when a person is really striving to win the Olympics, he puts his body through agony. He literally is broken down at the end of the day, practicing and getting himself ready for it. So, ago nozimai. Um, the prayers of Epaphras were as if in such a struggle. He so cared about those he was praying for that it was as if a struggle existed and he was going to obtain the prize by, by making his petitions in a favorable manner. This was his intent so that, as Paul says, you, based on his prayers, you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. The idea that we obtain from these words is that those he was praying for would be found perfect in their doctrine not mixing in false prophecies, I'm sorry, false philosophies or other errors. In this, they would be able to fully be pleasing to God in all ways. The idea of one standing in the Bible is that of being firm and fixed. When a wind blows, a person could get toppled over. But the prayers of Epaphras were that they would be able to stand against every wind of doctrine, and not be tossed about by the trickery of false teachings, something that Paul says elsewhere about people, the trickery of false teachings and being cast about by every wind of doctrine. You can think of yourself like being on a ship in the ocean, and the ocean is beating against the ship, and you're standing there trying to fight against all of this bad doctrine that's being thrown at you, like the waves, the chaos of the seas, and then the wind's blowing, and you're hanging on, standing against the, the uh, trickery of false teachings. To stand in this perfect way would then show them complete in all the will of God, meaning every precept by which the Christian should live. This was his great hope for those he cherished at Colossae. <clears throat> Excuse me. Life application. How fervently do you pray for others? Um, admittedly, Charlie Garrett is not the greatest prayer person in the world. I used to pray a lot more than I do now because I got so much more work that my the end of the day, I'm literally exhausted. There are very, very few days where I don't go to bed and just I'm wiped out. 
So I used to be a much better prayer person, but when somebody asks me to pray for somebody, I always stop right then. If I'm sending an email, I'll say, I'll pray for them. I always stop right then and pray for them. And that way I'm not lying. And that way it's done. And I say, Lord, if I forget this person in the hours ahead, please remember them on my behalf because I don't want to be a person that doesn't have the intent of praying for other people. But by the end of the day, I've gone through so much with answering emails and stuff that I just can't even remember most of these things. I go lay down and I try to remember. And Lord, you know, every person I've forgotten to pray for, please remember them for me. So, you said you used to pray when you were blowing off the uh, parking lot. Well, I do that. But, you know, that's once a week. I get two hours there. And there are other times where I pray. But throughout the day, I get all kinds of prayer requests. You know, I mean, it's not just... Uh, I go work at the mall early in the morning and I got a whole day worth of stuff coming after me. And by the end of the day, if I've gotten 10 prayer requests, I might remember two of them. So it's, it, it can be just very difficult. But, um, and the ones that are ongoing, like the bridges, you know, to pray for them because, you know, you, you see them in the hospital on Saturday. You get a call from Jay and Joan uh, three days ago or two days ago. Uh, she actually sent me an email and uh, said that, you know, Mabel's feeling kind of bad. And then today you said they're feeling better. So they're on my mind more and because I'm hearing about them. And so that's the kind of people I can pray for on Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning when I'm at the mall. But the people during the day, I, it can be very difficult. It, it can just be difficult. So I always, I I'll punt to the Lord and know that he, he's got my back on that. But um, there are people that are great, great, great prayer people. And, uh, you know, I had one friend, I, I have, I should say, and uh, she always writes down every prayer request and she reads through them every day. And she's so methodical about this, and, you know, and then she checks them off as they're feeling better or, you know, the problem is over or whatever. And uh, just a very methodical person. I'm not a methodical person. Sergio can tell you that. There's probably no less methodical person on this planet than me. And I don't know why he and I even get along because everything he does is so precise and he just does these, and I just can't be that way. But um, the prayers of uh, Paphras, oh, the idea of, yes, I read that. Um, I read that too. Okay, life application. <clears throat> How fervently do you pray for others? There are true prayer warriors out there who literally weep over those they pray for. And there are those who will say they pray and then they never do. Between the two, there are certainly many different levels. What we should each do is to attempt to move up the ladder of intensity until we were mature as prayer, a people of prayer, be able to pour out our hearts to God in sincere hope that he will hear and respond to our petitions. Okay. Um, one thing that we do, like we're in the projects and we go to all of the same houses every week. We never miss the same houses we go to. And then we try to add in houses when we find out somebody new has moved in or whatever. But there are a lot of times we go, sometimes there's a lot of houses that we go to, not just one or two. And sometimes there's just one or two, but we'll go to them and we'll knock on the door and nobody answers. And so we don't just say, okay, here, and we leave something and walk away. We stop and we pray for them. And I can't tell you how many times, you can tell this, all these guys that go can tell you how many times we have been standing out there praying for somebody and this old lady that it took her four and a half minutes to get to the door, <laughs> opens the door and sees us praying for her. And they always light up when that happens. Always. It, it just makes their day. And then we say, oh, we're just praying for you and come on, join us. And, and, uh, or somebody, you know, they're, I don't know, they're, for whatever reason, they don't hear us and then they think they hear something outside, but it happens a lot where people, hello, Miss Garrett, how are you? It happens a lot where people uh, 
you know, just suddenly show up and there we are praying for them. And we make a point of that. Every single house, whether they're home or not, we do pray for them. And uh, we pray before we get started. We pray when we finish. And uh, we try to do that at all times. So, um, 413. <clears throat> before you go on with that, um, about prayer and someone meticulously writing them down. Yep. And then just like the, the conclusion of what happens. And um, in our first um, uh, small group Bible study, we, we had these books that would like it was they were real flaky kind of like classes that we would have but still on the margins i would write down all the prayers oh yeah and i'd have all these books of like every week and oh my god prayers and stuff like that so one day i said you know what i'm just going to go through and see what what this all did and i would say that um that probably 80 percent wow 85 percent were answered positively in what you were looking for um there, there was still like a handful of them that were still on hold that you know, have never been resolved and then you know the ones that that weren't <laughs> answered to our our wishes it was like god's will so absolutely like, it like it was amazing though to see they just like you can see much. why he didn't respond is what you're saying probably so yeah yes. I mean, so it's like you know but it was just amazing, and, and that meticulous friend of yours, if she has it, she should compile it. Oh, absolutely. Really yeah, well, I'm anyway. sure she keeps them. I'm sure she, I'm she's sure. just a very methodical person. So about uh, Papus, let's see. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Okay, almost the same. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Good. Okay. Well, and we got, uh, what time do we quit? Yeah. Well, 630. We're going to get done. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to finish today. Whenever we finish, we're wow. going to be done. But you know, we're, when you get to the end of a book, it's always like this. It's just little things. It's not really doctrine. Hmm. And so you go through them really quickly. So I'll bet you we can get through the next six verses. Paul is still speaking of Epaphras. He says, for I bear him witness. <clears throat> he is testifying to the character of Epaphras having personally come to know him and to learn of that which motivated him and consumed his thoughts. Paul's witness was that he has great zeal for you, speaking to his addressees. This is the only time that he uses this word in his letters. It gives a sense of labor, but it is a labor of pain, as if struggling to make ends meet in the fields, but ending up each day in poverty. The word is used by John three times in the book of Revelation where it clearly signifies physical pain. Epaphras was willing to expend himself in concern for his beloved church in Colossae. And, Paul's words, those who were in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Colossae and both of these other cities were in Phrygia. It is known that Laodicea had a church. We know that from Colossians 4, 15, and 16, and Revelation 1, 11, and 3, 14. But nothing more is said of Hierapolis in Scripture. Whether there was a church there or just a group of believers who traveled to another church is not known. Vincent's Word Studies gives a brief description of these locations. They say, the cities are named in geographical order. Laodicea and Hierapolis faced each other on the north and south sides of the Lycus Valley. About six miles apart from Colossae was 10 or 12 miles farther upstream. Hierapolis owed its celebrity to its warm mineral springs, its baths, and its trade in dyed wools. It was the center of the worship of the Phrygian god goddess 
Sibel. Yeah, that's right, Sibel, whose rites were administered by multi-mutilated priests known as Gali, and of other rites representing different Oriental cults, hence the name Hierapolis, or Sacred City. Life application. Many people are willing to expend themselves in great labor for something. What is it that you would be willing to give your greatest exhortations for, or exertions for? There are things which are temporary and futile, and there are things which have true meaning and which will earn eternal rewards. How shallow we can be when exerting our energies for that which has no true value and no lasting value. Let us redirect. Let us be willing to expend ourselves in a great way for others and especially for the building of the church. Okay, um, two points about this. One of them is we've got the lady uh, Remy in the Philippines whose husband died. And she has become almost like this. She's really redirecting her life, and she is willing to expend herself for the people over there in the Philippines. She admits that she struggles with it. She's, you know, she misses her husband. She's got her child to raise. She's got all this going on. But at the same time, she's really, really trying her best to uh, live her life in a way that will uh, expend herself and her energies for other people. And she's doing a great job of it. That's just one example of many, many people I could tell you. I just, she came to mind. And the second thing is I read this back here about the, the uh, cities, um, Colossae and, were cities and Phrygia and Laodicea had a church. And we know this from Colossians 4 and Revelation. Okay, Revelation, um, it's one of the maddening things about the uh, hyper-dispensationalists mm-hmm. is they say that the seven letters to the seven churches, which is Revelation 2 and 3, are written to the Jews of the end times. Okay, they have nothing to do with the church age, which is crazy thinking at best. Okay, but there are reasons why people come up with these things. Once again, presuppositions and eisegesis. Okay, but um, the uh, problem with that is that there are no churches in those areas today. Okay, and so uh, secondly, those are Gentile locations. They're Gentile churches, and it's very clear. The context itself tells you that Revelation two and three are written to the church that we are in today. It's so clear that it's hard to imagine why people just want to push this agenda, but they do. And, uh, you know, this is just another evidence for that, that he's speaking to a church that is not only mentioned in Revelation, but it's also mentioned right here in the book of Colossians. So if uh, you're into hyper-dispensationalism, you are as wrong as you can be. All right, I just want you to know that. It's crazy thinking. It's not sound doctrine. And uh, everything about it, I could go on and on. You know, I've done a video on it. I can do one that would be 10 times longer and still not touch on all the crazy. But uh, trust me on that. Okay, go study up on it. And if you want to know more about it, just be careful when you're reading it so you don't let that stuff infect your mind. Okay, 414. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Oh, wait a minute. Luke's a Jew. No. Paul wrote something wrong. I'm, I'm so. Luke, the <laughs> beloved physician, and Demas greet you. I just. Do you see how maddening this is? It, it's what? Three sentences from the other one, and they can't. Anyway, um, 414. As noted in verse 411, from this verse, it becomes obvious, like the sun shining at midday, that Luke is not a Jew, but a Gentile. The earlier verses gave a list of names that were followed by the words, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. This means Jews. 
As Lucas now named, it verifies that he was, in fact, a Gentile. This is the same Luke noted in Acts 17.10, and he's recorded as being with Paul in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. He is cited here as a physician, something readily supported by his annotations in both the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. His carefully worded statements demonstrate an observant eye and an understanding of both health and healing issues. When you read it, there's just no doubt. He uses medical terms. Uh, one of the uh, uh, things that you'll see is when Mark speaks of the, um, the eye of the needle. He uses one word, um, uh, I believe it's arafis, and then Luke uses another one for the same thing. He uses belones, I believe. And one is a fisherman's needle and the other one is a surgeon's needle. And so you can tell there's a difference in the style of writing by these people. They're saying the same thing, but they're using a different reference for it, okay? And so Lucas, if you read the Greek words and you study what he says, it's very, very apparent that what he is saying is from a medical perspective. He also tells a lot about women, for example, in his gospel that the other gospels don't include. He includes very meticulous details that other people don't include. So um, you can just get a, a real sense for the style of the writing of Luke just by studying each word that he puts in there. Um, his carefully worded statements demonstrate an observant eye and an understanding, I said that, of both health and healing issues. The wording about him in the Greek is more emphatic. It says, Greek, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, greets you Luke. I said Grook. Anyway, greets you Luke, the physician, the beloved. The emphasis is on Luke's status as the beloved doctor. Following this high note of acknowledgement, Demas is noted, almost as an afterthought. It appears obvious that he was there with Paul and said something like, oh, tell them I said hi also. But the highlighting is on Luke. What can be inferred from a later note concerning him in relation to the warm comments about Luke is that Demas was not of the same caliber as Luke. In a sad note towards the end of his life, Paul writes this concerning these two, 2 Timothy 4. So we want to go Thessalonians, and then you've got uh, Titus, and then you've got I'm Timothy, and then Titus. So 2 Timothy, and then in chapter 4, it says there in verse 9, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in my ministry. Okay, going on, he says, Antichicus I have sent to Ephesus. All right, so uh, you can see that Demas was just not of the caliber that other people were. And even in this epistle, you can kind of get that sense from it. Um, Charlie, but put it. Be a different I Demas? You, I might get you riveted. That's all right. Could be a different Demas. No, like oh. Luke, couldn't be at this time, Luke was not part of their group. But then later he became like a fellow worker in Christ. So in this categorization, he doesn't list them as fellow workers. So he's No, he's listing all of his fellow workers right okay. here. These are all fellow workers. Yeah, okay. absolutely. We'll read it again. And no, I, I oh, okay. I was reading it. Like, could that be possible? Yeah, I, I would not think so. I, I just wouldn't think so. And there'd be no point in doing that. There would be no point in saying these are my fellow workers, the I only of the circumcision. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, it, and it would be something that would cause confusion in the epistle. Paul doesn't do that. He's really precise about, well, yes. Uh, Charlie, I wanted to ask just, is 
because the second Timothy letter happened after the Colossian letters. Like yeah, Timothy is towards the end of his life or towards the end of his ministry. So after that, Demas yes. went back. Demas to took the off and he was a faithless soul. Absolutely. And is the same Demas that you said? Well, no, I don't know that, but we could ask that. Is it the same Demas? But it wouldn't make any sense for him to say that because Demas was well enough known. In other words, you know, Demas left me. Now, if he said uh, there was somebody named Demas that left me, then you could say, but it, it, I think it's pretty clear that it's the same guy. And so anyway, um, you know, we can't know these things 100% for certain, but they're, they're pretty discernible from the text. Uh, and Demas may have been with Paul at the time of his writing to those at Colossae, but it is apparent that his heart was not in his assignment. All of the others mentioned in this chapter have something extra added in about them except Demas. Life, life application. Question. If your pastor was to describe each person in his church, when he got to you, what do you think that he would say? Now, I typed this before I was a pastor, or maybe I was preaching on the beach, but I wasn't what you would call a pastor, okay? So I'm not trying to convict anybody here, but I hope it convicts you, okay? Um, if Or if you attend another church and you, uh, uh, what do you think your pastor would say about you, okay? Um, Albert is a wonderful soul, always helping out. Max is such a blessing to be around. Sperry? Mm -hmm. Sperry's usually a church. Anita makes the life of everyone else a bit brighter. Marigold? Marigold? Hmm. See... Hmm. Do you want to be remembered as a hmm? 415. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Penimpa and the church in her house. Okay. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. That one says her house, right? Yeah. There you go. Nymphus is a male name. Nympha is a female yeah, name. There's no S here. And yeah. Okay, and they have that footnote, and it says the NU text reads Nympha, her house. So, um, I, I don't know what footnote. Okay, you don't? Nope. Okay, so yours is lacking the proper footnotation. So, it was right. Yeah, there you go. So, there, there was one of the two. Uh, and what happens here, once again, I'm not here to argue about the... Uh, that's a bad text because it says Nymphus instead of Nympha, okay? Mm -hmm. If you're King James onlyist, I can't help you with these type of things. But you have scribes that are sitting there writing stuff, okay? And they, uh, they are asked, we need you to make a copy of this epistle and get it off to this church, okay? Some of them were not qualified as scribes. They were just people that were paid, they could write, and they were paid, okay? And so they have 10 billion different reasons in books that describe uh, the uh, translation of texts and the uh, passing on of texts, how people make mistakes. And something like this is a very simple thing to do, okay? This does not change no. doctrine in the Bible. If it's Nympha or Nymphis, it's if it's his or her, it doesn't change anything about the doctrines of the Bible. In the end, we are going to find out whether Nympha or Nymphus is standing next to us in the line at... Uh, lunch in heaven okay we don't need to worry about that now and so i'm not one to to go arguing over things like that one is right one is wrong right. okay but there and is a church in a house there is a church in a house that's right and the thing about that is is that uh the people that have this text will say well this is obviously right and that's wrong they have no more basis for saying right. that than these people that say this is right and that's wrong 
I was so, joking. No, I know you are. Yeah, absolutely. What was that? I, I oh. told Sergio maybe it was a husband and wife. Hey, yeah. Yeah, well, it was. Right. Husband and wife, Nymphus and Nymphus. Uh, but then the house they're talking about, I guess it would be, it would be depending on what house. you're talking about. Yeah, their house. Anyway, yeah. Um, I. <laughs> yeah, so you see, it's just, anyway, but this is the kind of thing some people yeah, really get crazy though, about. I've never oh, yeah. noticed that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I so. I've noticed it. <laughs> um, 4.15, was that what we just read? Yep. Okay. Um, what seems like a simple and easy to understand verse is actually a bit complicated. First, Paul says to greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. In verse 16, he will say also in the church of the Laodiceans. It is argued by some then that this is a special body of Christians which are being referred to here. Others feel it simply refers to all of the Christians in Laodicea in both verses. Just because of a different type of terminology, they say blah, blah, blah. Okay, individually, they are the brethren. And collectively, they would be the church. And there's nothing wrong with that. If I was writing to somebody, I'd say, please tell all of the guys at church I say hi. And then at the end of the letter, I might say, please tell the church that I love them all. Right? Okay. So there's no problem with that. But people love to argue these things. It's hard to be dogmatic, but that makes complete sense. It would be like saying, pass along our greetings to any of the brethren you meet and be sure to greet the church as a whole. Okay. He then says, and Nymphus. Who Nymphus is cannot be determined. This is the only mention of the name in the Bible. And further, it isn't known if this is a male or a female. If, or if this is the full name or a short name of a longer Greek name. From there, Paul goes on to mention the church that is in his house. Again, there are disputes between manuscripts. Some say his house and some say her house. And some say, Rhoda, their house. <laughs> If there, then it would be speaking of Nymphus and the family, or Nympha and Nymphus, okay? Anyway, again, it's hard to be dogmatic, but scholars put their trust in one manuscript or another and will often dogmatically claim to be correct. Nothing is lost in doctrine by any possibility. I tell you what happened today. I'm going to talk about this just because it came to mind. I had somebody email me, and you know when you see an email and you get the first eight words, and that's all you see when you right. got. And it was said, I read your thing about the King James onlyism, and I thought, oh, here we go. And I was just kind of like, I'm not reading that now because it was early in the morning. I thought I'm going to be spending an hour on this. So I uh, maybe it was yesterday, and then he responded to it. That's what happened. It was yesterday. Anyway, so. I finally got time where I thought I can answer a question like this. And so I opened it and he was like, I read your evaluation of it and I'm, I'm thankful that you did that. I think this is the first person that hasn't said I'm going to hell or something because I've got a commentary on why the King James Version has all these errors in it. Anyway, um, so uh, I'm kidding about that, but a lot of people love to condemn me because of that. Anyway, um, so he said, I appreciate that. And then he asked, you know, what version do you suggest? Instead of being belligerent, and mm -hmm. he just, so I, I gave him an analysis of these things, and he actually said, which version doesn't have all of the errors? And I said, <laughs> you're not going to find one. And I explained why. I went into a long email as to why it's so hard to translate Bibles. King James Version. Okay, you got, I, I think it was like 56 guys, or they know the number, 52, whatever. There's a certain number of guys. And they make committees. You're going to do Genesis 1 through Genesis 10.5. You're going to go from Genesis 10.6 to... And so you can literally see, if you are reading the Hebrew, 
and following and checking the King James Version, you can see, I saw it yesterday in Acts 14. I can see where a translator stopped or a translation committee and another person started or a committee. You can see the difference because they have gone through the first uh, 14 verses, we'll say. I, I can't remember where I'm at. I will say the first 20 verses of Acts 14. Every single verse is wrong in the verbs. Every one of them. Wrong. They translate an aorist verb, as a present participle is an aorist verb. It, they're just wrong. Every single one of them. And then you get to verse, we'll say, 21, and all of a sudden, a aorist participle is translated as an aorist participle. And a present participle is translated as a present participle. You know that you now have a new set of translators there. That's one reason why it's so hard to translate is because you got these people this committee doesn't understand Greek properly. This guy does. And so they're translating. And when they get to the next one, nobody goes back and says, well, you translated all those wrong. They just, they do their job. In the next. And then what happens is after you've got this translated, it's still probably very cumbersome. You know, when I translate in, uh, on Sunday, it's very cumbersome the way I read it in English. Mm -hmm. That's probably what they're doing. They're giving you a literal reading of it. Okay. Or what they think is a close rendering of it. And then from there... An editorial committee will be just set up and they will take it and they'll say, this does not sound, nobody's going to get this. So they editorialize it and they try to keep it as close as possible, but they have to add in is and are and were and all that stuff so it makes sense. Okay. And so this is how translations are done. So you're always going to have, this guy translates this word as fire. This guy translated as um, uh, flames. flames. Okay. Yeah. Something like that. And so now you've got an inconsistency in the translation, okay? Because they're not saying the same thing. And pretty soon, words that should be the same are not, okay? So that's another problem. And then you have something like Young's translation. Young's, Robert Young translated the whole Bible. And he's one guy. And he doesn't have a committee to help him with the information. He's got to make choices on his own. He's got to make... And he forgets what he did back here, maybe. And so there's always going to be something lacking in a translation until the Lord shows us the perfect translation. I, I'm certain of it. But there are some that are way better than others. And there are some that are, you know, I, I told him, it's fine if you get an NIV. It's very easy to read. It's a good translation until you get to about the year 2000. And then they start changing brethren or brothers to brothers and sisters. And there's no need for that. There's nothing wrong with doing that in the Greek, okay, because the masculine stands for all. But why would they do that? Because it's political correctness, and they want to, it's inclusivity. And you can see how society is devolving with Bible translations. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's a sad thing. And so I don't recommend anybody read an NIV after about the year 2000, mm -hmm. because you're getting somebody that is politically correct introducing a concept that should not be introduced into Scripture, okay? If somebody starts out in the year 1862 and says, brothers and sisters, and that's how he translates it, that's because the Greek allows that. And he's including the women. But to change a translation of the Bible simply to update it for modern thinking, to me, is inexcusable. It, it just is. And so don't read the NIV. You know, go back to an older version and maybe even 2004. I can't remember where 2003 they... is when this one was okay. Right. I, I think it, it might right after that. Okay, yeah, 2004. I, I think is the year, and that's why I said it came to mind. I think it's 2004, but there's a point where it just starts going 
and, and it's just getting worse by the year. They keep updating it because you keep getting more money when you make a new revision of your Bible, and uh, the whole so thing is bad. Every year. The what? A new iPhone every year. New I that's Sergio. New iPhone every two months because he's always having Rhoda drive over him or something. It's just unbelievable. So your Bible translation every year. Every year you got to update your Bible translation. Anyway, so he was a very gracious guy. It, it wasn't a belligerent email, and he even came back. He said, "Thank you. You responded so quickly." And I'm like, "Not as quickly as I could have, because I could have done it at 3:30 this morning." But I, I thought if I open this. I'm going to respond, and I've got all this work to do before, and so I waited a few hours. And and uh, anyway, um, so that's that's the deal with uh, King James Olneyism and and things like Nympha and Nymphus and whatever. Okay, uh, the same term, church that is in their, your, his, her house, is used in Romans sixteen five. It's your house there, um, and in one Corinthians sixteen nineteen, both speaking of Aquila and Priscilla. Okay, there, if you're speaking of them in the second person, you're if you're speaking of them in the uh, uh, first person, I guess, or third person, whatever. Anyway, I, um, okay, so it is also mentioned in Philemon 1, 2, when speaking of the church in the house of the person we believe is Philemon. Uh, I say that because I, Sergio and I were going through Philemon, what was that, yesterday or today? Yesterday. Oh, we, today, I'm not sure. I, <laughs> we're both tired. We, we probably talked for, what, an hour and a half about one thing in the book of Philemon. It went on. He kept saying, yeah, but, and I'm saying, no. And he said, yeah, but, and I'm like, no. And we went back and forth and back and forth. I was like, oh, and I was having a frustrating time anyway, which I won't bring up. But, and it just, I was like, I finally said, why are you doing, why are you doing this? Anyway, um, okay, so Philemon 1, 2. The word simply means a general assembly, okay? Wherever the saints gathered to meet, fellowship, study, and so on, that was considered a church or the church. It is the idea which is seen here. When we speak of a church today, it is almost always a building. I'm going to the church today, and it's a building, okay? That is never the intent, uh, the biblical intent of the word church. It is a gathering, the ecclesia, the called out assembly. And a church can be anywhere. It can be at any time. There are no days of the week you have to meet. There are no days of the week that you can't meet. Okay, there's no place that you can't meet. Uh, Dad went uh, all around the world one time and he went through Australia, the outback, and then he got on a, a ship that happened to be leaving. It was just a merchant trading ship and he went to some islands in the Pacific and there were people out doors it was a catholic area but there they were standing there with their you know the the ladies wearing these things and no tops on it was just one of these primitive places and they're catholic churching on sunday morning in a church in the middle of nowhere right and so a, a church is where the people gather to meet but then when i say they don't have tops on that's their culture even to this day they just don't wear you know their places in africa like this to this day where people don't have tops on and that's not considered inappropriate. Our, you know, Victorian mentality inserted that into the world's thinking, but that's not the way. When I was in Japan, when I would, like, we'd go to what's called a ryokan. A, uh, it's a house that rents out a room. And so it's like, a, it's not an Airbnb today, but it's the people live in the house and they will rent out to people to stay in their house. And it's usually a really nice deal. They gave you great food. They've got a nice place set aside. They always give you the best room overlooking whatever you're in. And uh, uh, the older Japanese people in these yokans would go outside and they'd take their shower outside. And they'd be, I walked around one day and I was like, oh, and Hidako says, well, that's 
the culture. And so, anyway, um, you just have to accept that the world is not like the United States. And a church is a body of people that meets anywhere and in whatever state that culture uh, determines. So, anyway, um, let's see here. Um, life application. <clears throat> Way too often we spend our time worrying about the church building we attend in relation to our walk with the Lord as if it is the source of our walk. I can tell an entire denomination that has this attitude. It's Roman Catholicism. The church is the basis of their walk. I get this all the time when I talk to Catholics, and I don't think you disagree with that, would you? Yeah. The church is it, it is in place of Jesus, and Jesus is more of an afterthought than anything else. Um, when I'll talk to a Catholic, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, and then but immediately they insert, but the church, but the church, but the church, and that is their their focus. That is their hope. That is where they go for their you know uh, asking forgiveness and their hail marys and all that kind of stuff. And that's a very sad place to be. This is incorrect. The gathering together of the brethren in any place can be the church to us. As long as it is focused on a right application of the word of God, then we can consider it to be our church. The walls of a building do not define our walk with the Lord, but rather that which occurs within whatever walls is the church. Today with the internet, the church can be a gathering of people in that way, streaming online as a single body. Just keep the word and proper worship of the Lord at the center of the meeting, and you will be in the sweet spot. Okay? 416. So I looked up nymph. This okay. Nymph that was like kind of tilted either way. It's okay. It's funny. It's like we all have that, you know, the sexually aggressive email. Nymph. Right. That is like one of like several uh, definitions. And the one that's probably the most known right. is um, biological. It's like every immature grasshopper and cricket is known as a... Nymph, that's right. So it's like, okay, so it, it, that goes way back. That's Greek too, huh. that, yep. that, where that comes from. Oh, yeah. So anyhow, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Okay, almost the same again. Now when you when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Okay, do we have the epistle to the Laodiceans no. in the Bible? No. Okay, so there you go. Uh, well, people say it's lost. It was not intended to be in Scripture. Sure. God did not want it in there. So we can say it was lost in that regard, but it just wasn't canon. Paul had things in there that did not meet the requirement of it and so on. But uh, I do believe that uh, the, the, hang on here, there may be something about that epistle, maybe not. Okay, anyway, Paul's words of this verse show that it was meant that his letters be read openly, and thus they are intended as church doctrine. Now when this epistle is read among you, shows us this. It is similar to his words in 1 Thessalonians, okay? He's writing to the Thessalonians, which is our next book. And then in chapter 5, he says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The letters he wrote were not intended only for the leadership, but they were written for all to hear and understand. It is an amazingly similar sentiment to what it says in the Old Testament at the giving of the law. Time and time again, the words, speak to the children of Israel, saying, are used. 
At times, it specifically says, speak to Moses and or Aaron, but these are usually within a section which has already been addressed to all the children of Israel, and they are those things which are specific to the priestly duties. Okay, now having said that, and I will admit, <clears throat> all the children of Israel at times can only mean the leaders of Israel because they are to, uh, you know, assemble in a certain area, and there was no way that the people could have all fit into that area. So we know that that was being said to the leaders, but the leaders were then to do what? Read it again. Pass it on to their people. Speak to all the children of Israel means to pass it on to all the children of Israel. Can we help you, sir? Uber. Uh, Uber. Yes, if you'd like, we have extra chairs today. The class is not full, and so if you'd like, if uh, you have a lady in the car waiting, she can come in and join you as well. Okay, love you. Have a nice night. Bye. He's a good boy. That's my boy. Okay, let's see here. Um, the same is true with Paul's letters. They are addressed to the church and give doctrine for all to hear. It is an important thing which is done, showing that the word of God was to be open to all and not held in private by a select few who would then have control over it, like Catholicism. I can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me when I was in, what is it, parochial school. Is that what you call it? Mm -hmm. Okay. When I was in parochial school, I was told I was not allowed to read the Bible. Or they say, I was told to read this verse and this verse and no further in the Bible. I've heard this many, many times. The Word of God is controlled by the church, and they have authority over it, and they actually claim authority over it when they are evaluating, like the book of John. I've got the note in that binder over there somewhere. The Catholic says, we reserve the right to determine the canonicity of this verse. Okay, and so that's a paraphrase. That's not exactly what they said, but that's the intent of what they said. They have control over the Word of God. They tell you what you are going to read. They tell you what you're not going to read. Now, when we meet on Sunday morning, I tell you what we're going to read because I prepared a sermon and I'm now going to evaluate it for you. But I have never, ever failed to tell people, go home and read your Bible. Oh, I got the nicest email. I sent it to Sergio and Rhoda. Um, uh, and also I, I sent the part that was, I took a picture of it and sent the part that was for them. And I also sent it on to a couple other people that were mentioned in the letter. This lady said something, I don't remember the exact intent, and I don't want to say it wrong, but she uh, had mentioned that uh, she's so thankful that we harp on reading the Word of God. And she has gotten to the point now where she reads the Bible every 90 days. That's ahead of the curve. I tell people, if you read 30 minutes a day, you will be done in 152 days. Just do the math based on a audio Bible. She's reading it every day. And she also starts her day reading a commentary every single day. And she ends her day every single day reading a commentary every single day. She is in the Word of God. And she is, I'm going to tell you this, she is going to be rewarded for that effort. She is going to be rewarded for her time. And I'm not just talking about in this life, having a life that is under control and that is, uh, you know, being properly led. She's also going to be rewarded by the Lord who says, I favor those who tremble at my word, who love my word and who seek after it. Because when you are seeking the word, you are seeking the Lord who gave the word. I was so happy to receive that email. It was just a day or two ago. It was such a wonderful thing to read. Just, just a very, very gracious letter. 
that uh, was an email. It was a letter. I, I sent a, a copy of it. I, I took a picture of it, so it had to be a, a physical letter. Anyway, I, I, I'm just tired enough where I can't even process my own day over the past two days. But um, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, just wonderful thing to read that. It was just marvelous every 90 days. And so if you're doing that, it's three months, and there's four times a year you're reading the Bible. Okay. That's wonderful. Wow. Okay. Um, after the letter to those at Colossae was read to the congregation, Paul says, see that it is read also to the church of the Laodiceans. The intent here is that the letter was to be circulated for others to know proper doctrine as well. Not for the church to tell you doctrine. They can instruct you on doctrine. There's a difference. I will instruct you on doc doctrine. I'm not going to tell you that you have to believe as Charlie Garrett believes. You can be as wrong as you want. Steve, you want to be wrong? Go ahead. That's your, uh, I'm just making a joke, okay? I'm not saying that I'm right. Never, but I will instruct you on doctrine. I'm not going to dictate doctrine. The Catholic Church does that. And that's inappropriate. I'm sorry. Um, it is possible that the, um, oh, the intent here is that the letter was to be circulated for others to know pro proper doctrine as well. It is possible that the original itself was circulated on to the next church, especially because it contained Paul's personal signature with his own specific handwriting. It is also possible that a copy was made and sent. Or, if the original was sent, it is certain that a trustworthy copy was kept back in case the original was lost. The letter would be cherished and referred to often as questions or disputes arose. Okay, think of us in the church right now, and we have a dispute. We have a question. We have uh, a disagreement. Where do you go? You don't say, well, Pastor John, where, wh what's the answer? Like the JWs do. The JWs say, well, I'm going to go ask the okay. elders. I've heard that a million times from them. They come to your door and you say, well, this. And he says, well, i got to go ask the elders. Don't ask the elders. This is where you go. If you're going to talk to Pastor John, he better have the book open while you're talking to him. Okay, it doesn't matter what he thinks. It doesn't matter what he feels. What matters is how he interprets the word of God. Is it in context? Is he doing it properly? That's all that matters. Okay, so um, uh, finally, if disputes arise, word. Finally, he says, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. There are about 1,700 miles of commentary on these words. As there is no letter to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Laodicea, it is speculated that this is a lost epistle, as if Paul wrote a letter to them and it just disappeared. This is unlikely because, as stated above, a copy would have been made and either the original or that copy would have been retained. There is a forged letter known as the Epistle to the Laodiceans, but as scholars know that it is an obvious forgery, that is not what is being referred to here. This is sure because Paul says from Laodicea, not to Laodicea. There was no letter written to Laodicea, but rather there was a letter written to someone else which was carried to Laodicea for their instruction. This letter was then to be passed on to Colossae. As this is so, it is rather certain that Paul is referring to the letter to the Ephesians. That's what I was thinking about there. It is possible that the letter to the Ephesians is the letter that is being referred to, and hence there is no lost letter. But, as I said a week ago, there is no reason to assume that Paul did not write letters all the time 
to the people that he, we don't have a letter to Derby or Lystra or any of the places we're in right now in Acts 14, but I guarantee you he corresponded with those people. And he went and visited them, he revisited them, and in Acts 16, he goes back and visits them again. And so uh, Paul was very careful to provide instruction to his churches. Both letters, though, Colossians and Ephesians, are similar in content in some areas. But both contain many great differences as well. Also, Tychicus was used to convey Paul's words to both Ephesus and Colossae. That's in Ephesians 6.21 and Colossians 4, 20, 4 verse 7. Because of this, it can be deduced that there is no lost letter, and also that the letter he is referring to is that of the Ephesians. If this is not the case, it would then be another letter which we possess and which was picked up by Tychicus and brought from Laodicea to Colossae. Life application. We have a sure word. And that sure word is not to be secreted away, but it is to be openly read and proclaimed. Its truths are not for a pope and his magisterium to determine what it means, nor is it meant for any other select individual to interpret Instead, it is intended for all of God's people to open, research, and delight in. It is also intended for our doctrine. Okay, yes, we are going to finish the book today. So, Amazing. 417. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. Okay, little different here. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Okay, let's see here. Um, Paul's words here are taken by many scholars as a rebuke of Archippus, which are intended to urge him back to a proper fulfillment of his duties. Why anyone would come to this conclusion is a bit hard to understand. Paul begins with and say to Archippus, the letter is written to the church at Colossae. It was to be read to all there, and then it was to be read to the church at Laodicea. To rebuke someone like this at the very end of the letter would be inappropriate at best. If he's going to rebuke somebody, he's going to do it like he did with the Corinthians, and he's going to start the letter, or maybe in the middle of the letter, explain what he is talking about. He's not going to do it at the end of the letter. Okay? So, instead, the words, take heed to the ministry, which you have received, are certainly a note of encouragement. Paul's letters are written as notes of doctrine. They are intended to instruct the churches in how to handle false apostles, false teachings, and heretical ideas which crop up. Archippus had received a ministry which he was responsible for. In Greek, it is diakonia, or a deaconate. But rather than being a deacon, it is probably meaning that he was in charge of the deacons. Some take this to mean that he was the lead pastor, or at least in a similar position. Okay, there we go again. I just read something from somebody that, uh, who sent this on? Anyway, pastors never mentioned in the Bible. We should never call somebody a pastor. There's 10 billion things not mentioned in the Bible, okay? A pastor is somebody that does what? Pastoral. He pastors. What is a pastor? Shepherd. There you go. <laughs> uh, okay, shepherds are mentioned in the Bible. He is shepherding his flock. It, people get into semantics and they get these things in their head and that's the end of their thinking. That's all there is to it. Just because it the doesn't say... point your finger at somebody. I want you to know the elder is in the Bible and pastor isn't. Get out of here. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's just... It, it, it's maddening that people come up with these things. But there you go. You know, we've got all kinds of words to describe things. 
we have Presbyterians and we've got, you know, uh, Episcopals. And these are words that come directly out of the Bible. We've got other words that explain what is in the Bible. I, I just don't understand that thinking. But anyway. I the great thing that he also ends the same way to Timothy. Oh, Timothy. Oh, yeah. To, guard, guard your... Uh, the trust that is committed to you. Oh, it's wonderful. Same way to end. Yeah, he ends with encouragement, not something that is negative. Very good. I, I'd forgotten that. Uh, let me see if I can remember to put that in there. What was that? Two Timothy? Or one Timothy? One Timothy. Okay. Uh, last verse of chapter six. One Timothy. Six twenty. Six twenty. Okay. One Timothy six twenty. I might try to add that in somehow. We'll see. Um, uh, that's a great, great thing to add in there. Thank you. Okay. Um, uh, yes, the position he received in the Lord. Okay. Rather than saying from the Lord, Paul uses this term. It means he was not an apostle, but rather he had received his ministry from someone who was already in the Lord and was acknowledged and ordained to the position that he held. This is an implicit reference to the idea of the apostolic age, which was coming to an end. When those who had received their ministry from the Lord were all gone, there would be no more apostles from the Lord. Okay, we can have an apostle from the superior word, but why do that? Okay, it just confuses people because it's a word that is used in the, the, the Bible to represent something that we don't really think that way anymore. Okay, we just say, I'm from the superior word, and that's it. We don't need all these titles and stuff. Okay, anyway, um, the apostolic age was coming to an end. There would be no more apostles from the Lord. Rather, all would be ordained in the Lord from that time on. As he was in such a ministry, Paul was encouraging him, being in the position of a pastor brings with it many headaches as people come forth with a constant stream of ideas about what they think, despite having little or no theological training at all, and having spent limited time in scripture itself. It can be maddening at, maddening at times to live in a world full of specialists to lead. Now, I've said that many times in church, is that everybody knows better than the pastor. I can assure you of that. It doesn't matter what church you go to, the congregants will always know better than their pastor. Okay, and that's, I said that, and I said that before I was a pastor. Okay, I just know how people are. I've seen people argue with the pastor over things when they're completely wrong, or the pastor's trying to make a point, and somebody comes up and gets snippy with him. It's just the way it is. Our Kippus apparently bore this type of thing as well. And Paul was encouraging him to apply the words of his epistle to his ministry. It would allow him, as Paul says, to fulfill it. By relying on his ordination and by applying Old Testament scriptures and whatever New Testament writings were being circulated, including apostolic epistles, he would be strengthened to perform his duties in an effective manner. Archippus is mentioned just one more time in scripture in Philemon 1 verse 2. There he is called a fellow soldier. As these two letters were written at approximately the same time, we can see that Paul's note in this epistle is not one of rebuke, but one of encouragement. Archippus was in the battle, then he was working effectively, but he needed the additional encouragement of Paul's apostleship to strengthen him. Okay, so that's the story about him. Life application. Oh, we're going to be done today. Yeah. Amazing. When going to your pastor or someone, some other person you might correspond with who has a ministry, it is courteous to ask 
rather than dictate. Okay, I'm going to open a sermon in the next eight weeks, probably seven or eight weeks from now. I'm going to open a sermon with somebody who dictated to me. They sent an email to me and they dictated. I wasn't very nice to them in response, and you'll get to hear what this person dictated because it fit perfectly with the sermon that I was typing that day. It was the first thing I read that morning. I opened an email, first thing. It was this person dictating to me that I'd never heard from before. And you can imagine somebody clicking on for the first time onto one of these Bible studies, what they're dictating to me about. And I tore into this person. Anyway, it'll be at the beginning of a sermon. Don't do that to your pastor or to the person you're talking to, okay? They are people too, okay? Um, the person you are speaking to is fallible and could very well be wrong on an issue, but to charge at him like a bull can only put up a wall, which is then hard to later break down. Let your words, as Paul would say, be seasoned with salt. Or Jesus says that. Let your words, yes. Let, let your words be seasoned with salt and work without belligerence. Remember, you are one person coming to an individual who probably hears from many people over the course of a week. How easy it is to get eroded down if everyone is on the attack. I never should open an email first thing on sermon typing day. Okay, I should never do that because if it's a bad email, the whole day I'm sitting there thinking about that. But fortunately, thank you, Lord. The word fortune is kind of from a pagan origin, but it fits, okay? So I understand. Um, uh, it was propitious, we'll say, that um, uh, this person's comments fit well into the sermon. Other than that, it would have been a total blowout for me. Verse 418. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Okay, just a very little bit different. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Oh, oh, okay, 418. This is it. We're going to be done in about three minutes. This is the final verse of Colossians. The book has spanned four chapters, totaling 95 verses. To close out this masterpiece of wisdom and instruction, Paul begins with this salutation by my own hand, Paul. The letter was probably written by an amanusis, one who takes dictation, but then Paul signed the letter to confirm that it was from him, okay? This is the standard with most of his epistles. His handwriting was very distinct, having large letters. He says that explicitly at the end of Galatians, Galatians 6, 11. See with what large letters I write this epistle to you. He's telling you, I am writing this. I am confirming that all the information that was written in this letter is from me, now go do what I'm telling you to do, okay? He didn't have to do that here, but he does give a little bit of a, you know, closing greeting on his own. In closing, and concerning himself, he says, remember my chains. Numerous times in his letter, he refers to his bondage and his chains, even in verse 4-3 of this letter. It is probably for a twofold reason. The first is the obvious reason that he desired their prayers and he wished that they would have sympathy for him and empathize with him. The second reason is because his bondage was to remind them of his love for them. He is a Jew, 
He was imprisoned for the sake of the Gentiles. This is thus it was for their sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ. There was nothing shameful in his chains. Instead, it was the Lord's will that he was where he should be, right there in prison at that time. These ideas are to be inferred from a similar sentiment found in Hebrews chapter 13, where it says this in Hebrews. We're going to go to Hebrews, Titus, come on, whoops, almost lost it there, Philemon, Hebrews, and then we got to get to chapter 13. And he says, whoops, 12, 13, verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are ministered since you yourselves are also in the body or in the body also okay he's asking them to empathize with him and he's also saying that they are in chains for your sake okay paul finishes his personal greeting with grace be with you amen in greek it literally states the grace and thus he is speaking of the grace of jesus christ specifically this is a condensed form of that sentiment which is unique to this letter and the two letters to Timothy. Most other epistles give a fuller form of the thought. Paul desires them, and thus us, because this is in the Bible, to have and live in the grace of Jesus Christ. He then closes with Amen. So be it. Life application. Having read and studied the book of Colossians, you are now admonished to continue reading it, along with the rest of Scripture, every day of your lives. Pursue the word, cherish his word, and be ready to share both with others at all times. Always be prepared. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Colossians. We thank you for the wisdom that comes pouring out of it from you through the Apostle Paul. We look for the day when we can stand in heaven together with Paul and rejoice with him in who you are and what you have done for us in the person of Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for everything he is to us and everything he will be to us for all eternity. And we're waiting for that day. May that day be soon. Lord, we look forward to starting a new book, the book of 1 Thessalonians, if it is your will and if you haven't come for us before then. And uh, we just ask that you would bless our time in that book as well. But we certainly thank you for the time in Colossians. What a precious gift it is. We love you. We praise you. All glory to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 224 days, four, seven months, 10 days. Ooh, I love it. Okay. Okay. But you didn't mention that Archippus was the same Archippus as an yeah, I did. Yeah. I did? Yes. Yeah. You were sleeping at the time. Okay, apparently the sound is going, goes out when I um, uh, push the button. Is that correct? Uh, hold on. Oh, uh, we're going to have sound, and then when we have sound, then I can um, I can uh, put this on break, and then we'll say goodbye to you. Uh, okay, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. We're going to go to break. Yeah.